Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Patricia Baker looks at the life and legacy of Margaret McCurtain, marking the one-year anniversary of her death. Margaret was a historian, a feminist, a teacher, a human rights activist and a nun, and she was a woman who changed the narrative of Irish history forever. This is The Troublesome Nun. Maybe it has to do with ageing, but since turning 50, I have become acutely conscious that the liberties I have are because of the women who went before me. And I want to remember these groundbreaking women. But to remember them, we need to know them. I see my daughter, a young girl, reading and knowing about remarkable women in history. But that is a relatively new thing. I read her children's books and I see women I have never heard of that were not part of my history books. Historians have worked hard to write women into history and this is still an ongoing journey. In Ireland, that journey began with one woman, Margaret McCurtain. She lay a foundation for us to ethically remember our past and all its complications. She was a woman who challenged all conventions, including my own. Margaret McCurtain, also known as Sister Ben, Sister Benvenuta, and an Irish peg. She was a historian, a feminist, a teacher, a human rights activist, and a nun. She was a woman who changed the narrative of Irish history forever. And when I met her, I did not know the extent of her influence. You've seen so much. Yeah. What you've witnessed. Well, I have. I mean, I've lived 90 years. You know, in a very turbulent century, the 20th century, with two awful wars. We met with the intentions of continuing the conversation at another stage. But that was not to be. On the 5th of October 2020, Margaret McCurtain died. The full extent of her influence then came to pass. She actually had a great influence both on me and I think on my whole generation. Former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Uh, she was a very active feminist even before the Irish um, women's liberation movement, which started in 1970. Poets grieved her passing. Oh, yeah, we miss her. Paula Meehan, poet and playwright. I loved her take on the world. I loved her huge compassion. They wrote poems that were read to her on her deathbed. Uh, an utterance, I, I would have imagined that it would be spoken into her ear. So here it is. Candles lit and the rain is falling, drenching the streets, the gardens of Cabra. The harvest moon is rising beneath her coverlet of cloud. The meadows sodden, the rivers filling, water music in the drizzling dusk. Gratitude for Margaret McCartan, a migrant bird in the clearing air, steering by starlight, dreaming her own way home. Who is this migrant bird that the poets and presidents have such gratitude for? This is the story of her legacy and her life, a remembering of Margaret McCurtain. Margaret died during the COVID pandemic, and though there was an outpouring of grief and tributes across many media platforms, there was no Irish wake for people to gather to share stories about Margaret's life over cups of tea. So over Zoom, across Ireland and through crackly lines from New York, 
Her friends share tributes and stories about this troublesome nun. In 1995, we went out to visit mutual friends of ours in uh, New Mexico. Maureen Murphy, professor of Irish history, Hofstra University, New York. Luan O'Brien called us Thelma Louise, and off we went. Uh, Bad girls go west, she said. She was very, very generous spirit. Um, She was great fun. She had a wonderful sense of humor, always a a twinkle in her eye. Uh, She did have a wicked sense of humor. Dermot Ferreter, Professor of Modern Irish History, School of History, UCD, University College, Dublin. Margaret, in her own words, was often regarded as the troublesome nun. Everybody in UCD knew her. She was the nun. Mary E. Daly, Professor Emeritus, UCD History. And she was such an outgoing personality, and the students all adored her. And she's a, she has a very unusual mind. It can cut through in all kinds of extraordinary places and ways that I would never underestimate. Ah, she was a sweetheart. Poet, writer and broadcaster, Theo Dorgan. Yeah, there was a gentleman, a very unassuming Yes, but I I wouldn't mistake that for not understanding her own power and authority. I mean, everything she believed and said, she could stand over it. So, you know, she was not for turning in that regard. Former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese. That was her great vocation to teach. And teaching for her wasn't a case of here's the book with all the answers in it that were made earlier you know by a bunch of men in rome dr mary mcauliffe assistant professor and lecturer in gender studies at ucd i think margaret will always be remembered as long as people are writing um that broader more complicated history that includes the contribution of women and because of the work she has done i think those are the histories we will be writing from now on i can tell you one of margaret's last conversations the week she was dying margaret's publisher alan hayes of ireland house and margaret said i've had a very long life and a very happy life and she says i hope i made a difference We must remember the difference she did make. How she thought a generation to question more deeply, to remember more ethically. How she worked all of her life to affect change in Irish society and to write women into history. This documentary actually um, is is an important way uh, to capture uh, the impact that Margaret had, which was quite a wide impact. It was as an historian, as a feminist long before people were calling themselves a feminist, um, as an educator, um, as a Dominican nun, and um, as a woman of such warmth and kindness and humor um, that she made everyone, male and female, you know, love her for herself and for what she gave of herself. So this is the remembering of Margaret McCurtain. Now, I'm not a historian. And I'm not really sure if I am the right person to make this documentary on her legacy. But we had met, and she did share stories with me about her life. I liked her. She was warm and interesting. And as those who knew her would relate to, she was all questions about what I was up to. Enjoy what I do. Uh, You do, obviously, yeah. And it's Um, very useful what you're doing. All I ever did was capture people's voices. Ah, and you, yeah, capture people's voices and store them. Is it very good? That's lovely. That, I, that's a very, u- yeah, very, very useful. So with her blessing, this is her story 
the story of a woman who fought all of her life for women's voices to be heard in history. Margaret said, writing women into Irish history became a subversive activity for women historians in the 1970s. The universities were not ready for an innovation which, in the opinion of the historical establishment, possessed neither a sound methodology nor reliable sources. So she was up against it. She had to try and convince a male, sceptical male historical establishment uh, that this needed to be done. And that's what she meant about the need to be subversive because she was turned down and she had to keep coming back to it. Fellow historian and groundbreaker Mary Cullen. I met Margaret when I started teaching in Maynooth in 1968. And she was sister of Benvenuta then. So I just found her a good friend and a stimulating friend over the years. And we were both very interested in the development of women's history in Ireland. I was very aware of having studied history at UCD and really enjoyed it immensely, but also realising that in the way history was written, that I was both part of the history and an outsider, not women not included in the action that changed things. We had an absence of women in history. Absolutely. And you... But raise that great question when you say, what did women do? Yeah. I think what happened was that feminists began to say about history, well, what did women do? And when you began to ask, what did women do? You began to explore what became women's history. And Margaret, of course, was a, a fantastic pioneer. Uh, because she had established uh, not only the need uh, for, for women's history to be studied, um, but the uh, sheer range and complexity of what could be covered. She was asked at a later stage what she was most proud of. She actually referred to a book that was published in 1978, Women in Irish Society, The Historical Dimension. It was a product of the International um, Year of Women in 1975. It was um, a result of Thomas Davis lectures on RTE. And I think the reason she was proud of it was because she saw that as representing the intellectual vitality of the 1970s that there was the beginnings being made to a new framework of interpretation for the status of women in Irish society. I think um, going back to the first foray she made with the Thomas Davis lectures, that ambition to get people thinking and talking about history that's to do with women that also connects to present issues. Jennifer Redmond, Assistant Professor in 20th Century Irish History, Maynooth University. Connecting the past with the present and trying to find a better way forward for Irish society. As well as that too, don't forget, I, mean, I think I said it in the foreword of Women um, in Irish History, the Thomas Davis series, which was the first thing that broke into public, public acknowledgement of women's place in, and women's role in Ireland. You know, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. But somebody has to recognise that its time has come. And I was just lucky that I did realise that the time had come, that there were people out there, you know, who had a voice and they just needed the space and the opportunity and the kind of projection of courage to do that. 
I mean, I think there were other people there, you know, that uh, were important in what they were doing and saying and not getting any kind of uh, highlight or any kind of significance for it. Good example was my colleague Maureen Wall, a brilliant, brilliant lecturer. You know, I died very young at the age of 53. But um, she, she didn't seek, nor did she get any accolades. But she stands out to me as an example of the kind of woman who was a role model without realising she was a role model. As you were? Mm. Well, you don't think of these things. You just do what you have to do and that's it. Yes, she did recognise that the time was right to take on the challenge to get legitimacy for women's studies and women's history in academia. A challenge she took on with steely determination. Well, Margaret had to be very determined and stubborn to achieve her mission in relation to women's history. And it wasn't a solo run. I mean, Margaret was a great team player. She was very good at building alliances. And she got involved in an awful lot of of different groups and different organisations. Margaret established the Women's History Association of Ireland, along with Mary Cullen. But it was great to work with Margaret in that way because she was always full of ideas and thinking of things we could do. And we had very creative kind of meetings between ourselves and with other people. Creating um, a discipline that was rigorous and scholarly, but also made the contribution of retrieving those women's voices that have been lost. You have at times to raise your voice and say, listen to me, I have something to say. Remember, this was a time when there was no women's history studied in academia. We were observed, but we were never seen as active players in the development of society. As Margaret wrote in her book, Ariadne's Tread, Writing Women into Irish History, women did not recognise that they had a history, and I quote her here, though they saw themselves reflected in fiction and drama, they were alienated from any critique of their own experiences. We were happy to go along with that, you know, not to demand our space, you know, our, our voice in, in, in affairs of the state and affairs of society. So there was that, um, uh, th- that kind of collusion that went on between our silence and the uh, inability, if you like, of a public to say, look, let's move over and give space to women to hear their voices. And she's right. We, we tend to lose our own voices as well or let them be lost because, you know, we live in a patriarchal society. Women's voices are not valued. And, and internally, we've taken that on as well. We don't see our voices as valuable. And that is what Margaret supported as an academic teacher and writer. The retrieving of women's voices, women's experiences and women's contribution. Mary McAuliffe. But not just in a very general and broad sense that women did X, Y and Z, but who did it and why they did it and who were these people and find them again and name them. And what happens is it changes the histories. It changes our understanding of our collective past because our collective past was really written from the male perspective. So women like Margaret and historians like Margaret began to say to us, and, and I hope those of us in the next generations have taken that on, that we need to change that narrative, that we need to complicate the stories by putting the women 
front and center in our research and then putting them back into all those narratives. And so you have that fuller human history rather than a male-centric history. Margaret McCurtain and Mary Cullen sought to complicate the narrative. As Mary Cullen wrote, to find the women in history through stages of finding the extraordinary women and then the ordinary woman in history. Margaret uses that word in one of her articles, yeah. And of course, that's very, very important too. The women we did know about in history were women by circumstances of their birth or whatever, maybe to be a reigning queen in their own right or in some kind of position that was usually held by a man. But ordinary women, you didn't hear anything about them. Yes, that's actually been a, a, an interesting challenge. I think about it a lot because we all want to look for heroines and past figures we can be proud of and women who really broke the mould and challenged the patriarchy, etc. And they are wonderful cases, but they were presenting women in the best light and picking women that that was easy to do. And that was part of a project of, of trying to build some kind of historiography and some kind of baseline of knowledge about people. And the founders of women's history, people like Margaret McCurtain, Mary Cullen, and then internationally, Gerda Lerner is the one that most people know. They actually thought we'd be over that by now. We would have discovered all the last important women. Actually, it's not true. There's still more women that we don't know enough about and still biographies being written. But there's also another layer now of, of a little bit more critical engagement and also a turn to the ordinary. And most of that is not a study of kings and queens and generals and politicians. It's, it's about ordinary people. So I think Margaret's work is really important for that too, because in her own um, writings, she definitely talks about this and makes it important, makes allegedly unimportant things and people important. Not to harp on, but I think the person is important. So I think Margaret's work is actually really important for introducing that concept uh, with a gendered lens on it into Irish history more broadly. I think the emphasis on the personal testimony of women was a game changer for the development of women's history as a discipline and for that focus on gendered experiences, women in their own voices. That also chimed with a lot of contemporary political campaigns. And if you consider an awful lot of the focus that we've had in recent decades on how women experienced uh, their lives, the difficult themes of institutionalization. We've had an awful lot of focus on mother and baby homes, on the Magdalene laundries, um, on the incarceration uh, of women. An awful lot of the personal testimonies of women had been supplanted or replaced by quite abstract theological uh, and legal arguments. And it was about bringing that debate back to the reality of lived experiences and the reality of women's lives. Um, and that dovetailed, I think, very well with the much wider project that Margaret had in relation to the promotion of women's history. Well, it's true, like, I mean, there's no point in having a generalization if there isn't the backup of the personal identity or the personal journey of the person who is telling the story. In other words, uh, you know, you have only a generalized kind of grey matter there and doesn't tell the story of what really went down. What about Margaret's own personal journey? What led her to have such steely determination to take on this challenge? 
Well, I also accepted the challenges, and that came from my childhood. You know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't ever decline a challenge. I accepted it. Uh, and I realized like that uh, when you have to, you can really make a very different life for yourself rather than have it handed on a plate. Margaret was born in Cork in 1929. She was one of five children. Her father, Sean McCurtain, was a school inspector. You tell me a little bit about your own life. You, you... Well, my own life was a very interesting one because my father was a school inspector, uh, inspector of national schools. So it meant that every five years we had to strike camp and move from wherever we lived and go to a new place. And to do that, you had to um, you had to force yourself to get to know people. So I learned quite early on to be sociable and to make friends and to keep them. That when we moved on, I didn't lose those friends. I, I stayed with them. In fact, my two oldest friends, I've had them since the age of nine. You go and spend some time in North Kerry. I, sp I loved it. I loved North Kerry. Of all the places we were, including Cork City, where I was born and where my folks came from, my mother's people, I loved North Kerry. I looked back at them and it wasn't so much that I idealised them. They were idyllic years. We lived in Listowel and then we moved to Tralee and there were the war years, 1940s. And the school was very good, moved well. We lived four and a half miles outside the school and leaving all that behind you at four o'clock in the afternoon and feeling, you know, the freedom of a beautiful scenery. That was so lovely to get on a bicycle, be by yourself. You learned a lot of skills from just being alone with the landscape. Margaret said on a number of occasions that um, as a child, being alone in the landscape was the foundation of her mind. And there's a great truth in that silence, to be present to self and to the world as other. That's what sets the dialogue going. That's what sets the living mind to work. You know, Zen Buddhists call it being there. And she had a great gift for just being there. And then taking that and passing it through the, the lens of thought and, and the instruments of language to, uh, to nourish us all, to challenge us all, to inform us. She brought back reports from the world. And you went on then to join the sisters? I did. I gave a lot of thought to that. I got my first kind of call to religious life and I didn't like the idea of it at the age of six. Yeah, well, it was a sister who was a great friend of my aunt, who was a wonderful mercy nun, and she said, won't she make a lovely nun? It wasn't, wouldn't she? Won't she make a lovely nun? And somehow that stuck, you know, and right through my childhood, I had choices, but I used to come back to this, and I used to study nuns. I didn't particularly like the idea of their way of life, but I, for some reason, I felt, yes, there was a call there. So at the age of 21, when I'd done my BA and my HD. As Margaret said, she had choices, which was a privilege in the 1940s and 50s, to have the choice of education, particularly for women. She did her BA and HD in University College Cork, graduating at the age of 21, after having a very active political student life. Margaret was, as Mary Robinson said, a feminist long before people were calling themselves that. 
I was always a feminist. I think I had a fairly political role in UCC as a student. And I was also on the Students' Council at a very important time. We were in at a time in the, 19, the late 1950s when Ireland was changing anyway. So when um, Dr. Brown brought in the very controversial um, legislation around the Mother and Child Bill, uh, there was a lot of resistance the resistance arose from a perception that it would give the state control over family life, a matter the church thought belonged exclusively within the family and church teaching, and not in secular society. So that was a very interesting turning point for me. A turning point in her political thinking. But her life then took on an unexpected turn that surprised everyone. And got the offer in 1949 of going to, um, to study with J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous Tolkien of the Hobbit. He was her external assessor and was very impressed by her and invited her to England to do uh, um, further research. But she declined and actually end entered the Dominican Order, which at the time was an enclosed order. In those early years in the 1950s in, in uh, the novitiate, and then I came out and I taught in different places. But she, in her own life, she was pioneering. She was a young Dominican nun. And she was teaching in Zion Hill. And then she went and did her research for her master's and then for her doctorate. This was the early 1960s. She was living in a Dominican convent in Dublin while studying in UCD. Um. So she was living in a convent, you know, a convent without electricity. And a lot of her articles were written late at night by candlelight in the convent. An extraordinary commitment to scholarship and learning. Margaret did her PhD on Daniel O'Daly, a Dominican priest, historian and Ireland's first modern diplomat. He died in 1662. Margaret's PhD was later published by Ireland House. And she did research in France and in Spain and in Portugal. You know, when you think of a young nun at that time, Sister Benvenuta, doing all this, you know, she really was um, pioneering. And again, this is extraordinary for a cloistered nun in the late 50s to be doing a PhD. She went to, to um, archives in multiple countries, including uh, the, the secret Vatican archives in Rome. And that set me up on the kind of thesis that I did, the kind of research which was very, very interesting. She studied archives of women's convents and when she was uh, doing her viva, you know, her, her defence of her PhD, I believe one of the external assessors said to her, you know, why would you be bothering reading women's nun stories? So she argued that women's archives were a, a perfect source, a historical source for research. She was very focused on the promotion of sources and the identification of sources for uh, the history of women. She was also involved, um, indeed chaired the National Archives Advisory Council at one stage. So obviously Margaret is known as a historian of women, but when you actually look at her collected essays, she tackled the most extraordinary range of uh, themes. 
For her 90th birthday, I published her collected essays on state and society in a book called Metaphors for Change. Her essays were on subjects like feminism, culture, history, politics, mathematics, an extraordinary essay on mathematics, activism, spirituality, theology, education... She was endlessly interested. The thing is, you could meet Margaret anywhere. At the theatre, at a concert, at a poetry reading. She was absolutely animated always by what artists were doing and by the company of artists. She was always looking for a spark of interest that would send her off in a perhaps unexpected direction. You know. she, she wrote very well, and that may be why she was so interested in writers. She wanted always to say things as clearly, concisely, and provocatively when necessary. So I, I suppose we all thought of her as a writer, as well as all the other things she was to us, you know? There was a very broad range to her. She had an intense curiosity, and I mean, I often feel that's the most important ingredient that goes into the making of a historian, that intense, constant curiosity, and she had that across a broad range of areas. But let's not forget, she was also very involved in curriculum development. There were a lot of debates going on in the 60s and the 70s uh, about how history should be taught. Uh, she was very actively engaged in that debate. And of course, she authored and co-authored uh, secondary school history textbooks as well. You know, she also, um, Margaret saw Ballyfermot School as her most significant um, achievement. Margaret was the first principal of Ballyfermot College of Further Education in 1979. She headed up the college as a model for the prototype for future post-leaving certificate courses. Um, that's a product, too, of 1970s activism. That sense, she articulated, that the issue of education was very much bound up with wider questions of justice. You know, there had to be a focus on access. There had to be a focus uh, on enabling those who were traditionally excluded uh, from certain sectors of education. Uh, they had to be brought into it. Um, and she felt that very deeply. She was restless that education should be different and that it should be fulfilling. Mary O'Dwyer, who was a teacher in Ballyfermot, working alongside Margaret. And she was in a hurry to change education. She would always say, teach true lightness, not to be too serious. Again, the idea of to make teaching a happy experience. Ballyfermot College offered 22 leaving certificate subjects, the widest subject range in the country. They also had talks on health education and contraception. Uh, teenage pregnancy was, was very numerous in Ballyfermot at the time. So uh, we started a health education programme which included uh, relationships training and sex education. Margaret endorsed this and indeed promoted it and she saw it as the liberation of young people and particularly young women. She sometimes bypassed religious customs in order that students could become liberated in some ways. Margaret's way of teaching was to encourage students to question, to value independent thinking. Mary McAleese. 
She's always a teacher, of course. That was her great vocation. Um, she wasn't a person who, um, when you raised a query that, you know, that had to do, say, for example, with church teaching or teaching on a moral issue, she wouldn't reach for the answer book first, as so many of the nuns of my acquaintance would have done. Here's the answer that we prepared earlier, prepared by the magisterium, you know, that is the bishops in Rome, and that's the party line. That was never her way. Her way was to say, well, tell me what you think. And I enjoyed that because I belong to the generation who um, were taught that there was a, an answer book with all the answers in it and that we had that we would never, ever have any role in adding to that answer book. She was really in the forefront of education in Ireland at that time. And she questioned values and what was going on. This was not an easy route to take. She faced many challenges from the authorities and the church. And she was also rebellious. Mary Daly. I don't think it was known at the time, but there was a fight on her in Archbishop's house. You know, let's not forget that Margaret had to navigate very difficult times in the history department in UCD. And you are aware that there was an attempt made to get rid of her. Um, somebody in UCD got a rush of blood to the head and thought that she shouldn't be prioress of Sion Hill and UCD lecturing that she was double jobbing. On the grounds that, you know, that position wouldn't allow her to devote the attention she needed to UCD, which was a nonsense. Um, but it was an attempt to try and sideline her. She took a High Court injunction against UCD to a, on the grounds that they were, they were getting her through constructive dismissal. And, you know. But anyway, she won the case. But it's a reminder, I suppose, of the various difficulties that she had to navigate, not just as a teacher and as somebody who wanted to promote women's history, um, but also, you know, as someone who was uh, determined to challenge accepted wisdoms and authorities at that time. Writing in the early 1960s, during that climate around Vatican II and great change in the Catholic Church, she was writing about the, the place of theology uh, in the universities. And this raised the eyebrows of the very powerful Catholic Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, uh, who had a serious control over various departments, academic departments in UCD. Um, and he was wondering about this troublesome nun uh, raising questions about theology. And it was made clear to her that she was being watched. That was very disturbing. I had just gone into UCD. I had um, been on a seminar, you know, uh, and it wasn't controversial. It was just, uh, uh, it wouldn't be controversial in the early 60s. It was just a discussion on the place of this church in Ireland in the politics of, of the country. Uh, but he didn't like it and he um, phoned my mother general and said that he um, didn't seem to like the tone of what I was saying and that he wanted all my notes so that I could, that he could scrutinise them and obviously censure them. So um, I was quite upset. Uh, it came on a Sunday night. I was lecturing the next day, teaching, and I was quite upset. What do I do? So thankfully, I had a very nice uh, prioress in Dominican Hall, and she said, let me handle this. So whatever way she told him, she didn't write to him, she told me, she told him to buzz off. And that was it. I remember that very clearly as being an important, an important marker in my life. You know, that sometimes you need a champion. 
Do you feel yourself as a champion towards women's history? No, I don't. I don't feel anything about it, not at all. You've witnessed such a change, actually, when you think of the changes in Ireland and the change that the role the church has. Yeah, we could see it happening, you see. It was just on the, on the eve of Vatican Council. Like, it was a generation looking back on them. We still, those of us who are still alive, we meet and we talk about what an unusual generation we were. We weren't radical, though we did give support to the um, student revolution of the late 1960s. In fact, I gave us support to those students when they were objecting to the fact that they were not represented on the um, governing body of the universities, where they were paying their tuition and where they were participating in the life of the university, but in a passive way. There's actually a photo in the Irish Times from the late 60s of Margaret standing on a table in UCD in her nun's habit, and she's basically inciting the students. Uh, she spoke out in support of the student movement um, in UCD in 1969, wearing her nun's habit, I remember. And that was a great encouragement uh, for those of us who wanted to see change. Um, she said that she was excited and exhilarated. Uh, and, you know, the very fact that a teacher, as she was, you know, um, in UCD at the time, could, could talk like that about a student movement. And... Uh, she was a very active feminist even before the Irish um, Women's Liberation Movement, which started in 1970. But you know, she was a leading feminist, but she was a nun. That's the wonderful thing about it, yeah. Mm. That was the subversive bit. <laughs> well, I asked her at various occasions why she remained a nun, and I can't have been the only one who asked her that question, uh, because she did often seem to be on the outside. Um, and I think in many ways she was carrying a, a kind of an older Celtic spirituality. Um, but it was also, I think, a result of, of her living through a time of dramatic change in the Catholic Church. I mean, even the fact that for us, she was Margaret. We never ca called her Sister Benvenuta because she was using her own name um, by the time we encountered her in the early 1990s. Um, and she wasn't wearing the nun's habit uh, anymore. Uh, but she was still carrying that strong sense of, of spirituality. Uh, and obviously, a lot of the people that she became involved with uh, were agnostic, if not atheists. Um, and she was perfectly comfortable uh, in that company uh, and debating uh, the whole question of the role of religion and how people uh, experienced or not um, spirituality. Uh, so again, there was a, a roundedness there. Um, and Margaret would have been of that school of thought that what was needed uh, was a church that recognised its weaknesses that recognised its mistakes, that recognised its abuse of power, um, and to really reposition itself and to become a hell of a lot more humble. Now, we didn't, we haven't had that. We're very good, the Irish. We're very good at hiding things. We are, we've done it. We've yeah. done it in the church as well. Oh, yeah, we have. I mean, look at what's going on around child abuse. That went on for decades. You know, and, and yet no churchman, no, no leader raised their voices about the kind of child abuse that was, that was part of the Irish life, either city life or town life or country life. I think we're terrible hypocrites, the Irish. 
I think that confession has let us out of an awful lot of scrutiny of honesty. Say that, what, explain that? Yeah, going into confession, getting shriven from some ugly blemish where the priest can't tackle us. Can't say, hey, look, you, you hear what you're saying. And the church itself, hypocrisy. Yeah, there is hypocrisy there. Of course there is. You know, she believed in the same kind of vision of Christianity that I did, a loving God who was not um, inclined to divide people, you know, by ethnicity, by sexuality, by colour, by gender, but rather wanted all of them to embrace life, enjoy life and bring the best of themselves to it and be helped to bring the best of themselves to it. I mean, if you, if you consider that, I mean, she, she was entirely serious about her religion, a religion I don't share, but she approached it from a, a spiritual basis that allowed her to make a common identity with people of all creeds and none. Didn't shy away from those debates that were going on, not just in Irish society, um, but within the church as well. The very idea of getting involved in the uh, right to remarry campaign in 1995 um, the campaign um, to repeal the constitution, constitutional prohibition on divorce. Um, I mean, that was a very daring uh, enterprise uh, by Margaret and it took a degree of, of, of courage. Um, and she would have been making the point that she, in many respects, had been influenced by Vatican II, the whole debate about the liber liberty of conscience for Catholics, um, that they had been exhorted by Vatican II, as she saw it, to, to, to exercise that liberty of conscience. But as far as she was concerned, it was also about the tolerance of, of non-Catholic civil rights. Um, and she articulated that uh, very clearly. Um, and that was obviously a very controversial thing for a nun to do uh, in the middle of the 1990s. But again, that was just a continuation of other kinds of activism. She supported causes like the abolition of corporate punishment in schools, apartheid in South Africa, the campaign to preserve the Viking settlement at Wood Quay instead of having civic offices built there. Margaret was so much part of, uh, you know, so much that was going on, uh, you know, really influential. And of course, what came through all the time was her warmth and her humour. So people considered her a beloved figure as well. Uh, she did have a wicked sense of humour. She wore her wonderful knowledge very lightly, but it was there and it was very obvious. Um, and she was such a deep thinker and such a, uh, an interesting person to have a conversation with. And she always gave you something to think about when you were leaving her company. We all need to feel there are active minds at work in the universe, and hers was one of them. The joy of running into Margaret was to run into her boundless curiosity. You would have no idea what she might come out with. And she was fascinated by the, um, the variousness of things. She could be reading anything at all, the most unexpected things. I'm reading a book I haven't finished. In fact, I must go back to it. But it's investigating the way we have not faced the tragedy of evictions in our history. Most families you'll find had an eviction if they were rural. There was some tragedy of a part of the family being tossed out, usually between two brothers or even a sister and a brother. But um, it's an ugly part of our history and we have just phased it over. It's not taught in schools. Uh, 
it's it's an ugly reality in our in our past. We're back again to it with no um, no procedures how to deal with it. Back again to the same probably mawkish, awkward way of uh, of suppressing it, burying it. I think that our history is very treacherous to us. You know that that if we invoke our history, we don't know half the story. We don't know the story of informers. We don't know the story of um, people who crossed sides. You know, so like to invoke history as as the guide to good behaviour in Ireland is, I think, very suspect. That's the that's a privilege <laughs> to have somebody that can yeah. raise those questions yeah. in your mind and make you feel a little uncertain and make you feel like oh yeah I suppose I never looked at it like that before yeah. that's right. It's great when something makes you say think to yourself I never looked at it like that before <laughs> isn't it? Mm. Margaret McCurtain taught a generation to think more deeply and remember more ethically about our past. May we always remember the women who went before us. When Margaret was dying, when she was, you know, lying in bed and getting ready to pass over, um, the word went around. It was like a bush telegraph. People were texting and phoning each other, all those of us who loved her dearly. And Alan Hayes suggested that people send her messages because messages were coming in and being read to her. I hope she heard it and it's written in her own terms. Lochran Angelroth, Kjolnavlahaskot, Monover Muinterha, Ganund Vin Korchi, Marchor Falta Morhimpalart, Margial Holdwother, Adahrustit, Kola Efeg, Terkansuan, Godetu Slana Walya. An angel's lantern before you, the music of heaven towards you, a friendly murmuring in the sweet accents of Cork, a welcoming chorus about you as bright company on your journey. Sleep, Margaret. Go to sleep now. May you go safely home. Now, my dear, would you like a cup of tea? It was lovely to open tea. It was very enjoyable, and we wandered, I think, profitably. Did we wander profitably? Can I take that line? (laughs) (laughs) Groundbreakers, The Troublesome Nun, is a curious broadcast production funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee. Produced and narrated by Patricia Baker. Edit and final mix, Jerry Horn, Context Studio. Original music score by Jerry Horn. <laughs>